0: Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. Today, my guest is the evolutionary biologist and journalist, Colin Wright. He's also the founder of a Substack called Reality's Last Stand, where he continually makes the case for the differentiation between sex and gender. We had a really fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoy it.
1: Colin, thanks very much for joining me. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. I'm a big admirer of your work. Really appreciate that. Well, let's
0: uh, crack straight on with it. I mean, I've never had an evolutionary biologist on the show before. So you'll be in a position to be able to tell me, is sex a spectrum?
1: (laughs) So it is not a spectrum. Uh, You know, there's there tends to be a lot of ways people try to argue that it is, but it's really confused about what sex actually is, which is, uh, you know, how your reproductive anatomy is organized around the type of gamete it's organized around to, uh, to produce. So people will use things like the existence of intersex people. So people who have like ambiguous genitalia as this way to like suggest that males and females are just these arbitrary social constructs, Um, or they'll confuse like the secondary sex characteristics, like, you know, facial hair and uh, sort of the upper body strength that men get or breast development as evidence that sex is a spectrum, because these individual traits might differ sort of and overlap between males and females. Uh, But this is just fundamentally misunderstands what it means for someone to be a male or female. So um, sex is in a spectrum any more than, you know, flipping a coin could potentially land on its edge. One out of every six thousand flips Um, doesn't mean that heads and tails don't exist. So that's that's sort of my my take on that.
0: So when uh, you know, you would be able to find women that are a lot stronger than me, uh, that are a lot more traditionally masculine than me. But that doesn't mean that there's a third sex.
1: No, not at all. I mean, there would have to be another type of reproductive anatomy that is involved that someone can exhibit that's organized around to produce a third type of gamete, something between sperm or ova. Um, So, a lot of people think when I say that there's two sexes that I mean that every single individual on the entire planet can be, you know, categorically defined as either male or female. Now, I kind of leave it open. Someone might be able to be, you know, have a developmental condition that makes them truly sexually ambiguous in certain ways, but they wouldn't be a third sex in the same way that male and female are, are you know, individual sexes.
0: So why do I hear all the time intersex people uh, being used as examples of a third sex, much to the annoyance of a lot of intersex people, I notice?
1: Yeah, it's part of a larger move to try to blur the lines between male and female and to assert that male and female are these, are these social constructs which is then being used by trans activists to suggest that people who are unambiguously male or female should therefore be able to identify as the opposite sex, and then no one can tell them that they're wrong. So, in a way, these intersex individuals are just being used by activists uh, to further their own agenda. Because you know, even if sex were a spectrum, uh, it still doesn't indicate that you can choose where along that spectrum you reside. So, uh, their arguments just sort of don't don't hold up no matter. Even if even if you grant them. What they would like you to to grant.
0: So perhaps you could talk us through then this differentiation between sex and gender, because I think that's at the heart of so much of the confusion uh, around this debate.
1: Yeah, it's it's what kind of got me into this whole debate too, because you probably are aware that maybe in the 2010s, this is when I first started hearing about people talking about these differences between sex and gender. They were saying that sex is, you know, your your biology. It's your reproductive anatomy, but gender is how you identify, and that was something I was willing to go along with. A lot of other people were. Um, as a biologist, I just wanted to make sure there was this sharp line between biology, and, you know, psychology to some degree. Um, but then that line has been more and more blurred. So I'm I know what biological sex is, which refers to you know your set reproductive anatomy, your primary reproductive anatomy. But gender can mean all sorts of things, and it's, I think it's a major point of confusion in this entire, you know, cultural discussion about it. Because some people view gender as, you know, the equivalent of sex, they don't distinguish the two. Some think gender is just the, you know, evolved natural differences between males and females. Some include the social aspects that maybe uh, we've become socialized into, into behaving certain ways. Some people view gender as the societal norms and expectations that are placed on individuals because of uh, the way that they're, the, the sex they're perceived to be. Um, and then some people just think that gender is just some something you can completely identify with. It's like this internal sense of being male or female. So if we're going to have a debate on these, you know, it needs to be clear about what we're talking about. I don't really have a personal definition of what gender is. I just sort of ask people what they mean and then see what whether or not that conflicts with with my understanding of biology to make sure they're not sort of trying to blur some boundaries and use um, sort of sophistry to to confuse people or to push their agenda.
0: But it is very confusing. I mean, I often hear people talking about how we have an innate gender, which is fixed, uh, that we can't change, that should should supersede uh, our biological anatomy. And at the same time, I'm told that gender is really fluid and it can continually be in flux. and And then I see people... Uh, for instance, there was a, uh, a BBC programme where, where a woman was telling children as young as five, there are over 100 different genders. And she seems so certain about this. Um, but no one's really
1: certain, are they? No, I'm, I'm not even sure what they mean by gender in these situations. I mean, it, it sometimes appears that they're just referring to, you know, the, the recognition that people have about their sort of where they reside on the spectrum of Masculinity or femininity, like they've come to realize, if you're a girl, that you know you maybe you're more masculine, and you exist sort of you're more you have more in common with boys in terms of your likes and dislikes and personality and and and, uh, temperament. Um, But yeah, then there's this whole ideological sort of overlay on everything um, that's is sort of almost like an immaterial soul. The way they talk about gender identity, we all have one. This is this deep-seated thing, and we know from a very young age, even though it can change from moment to moment. Um, and then we should use this as a basis for, you know, springing forth and doing, uh, things like surgeries and, and blocking puberty because pe- kids know who they are is what they say. Um, it's one thing to say that kids are aware of their sex and are aware of their, uh, you know, where they reside in terms of masculinity and femininity compared to their, their peers. It's one other thing to say that, you know, we have this internal sense of knowing if you're a boy or a girl, like this is kind of a sort of a religious framework, uh, that they're dealing with. It's it, Exits the realm of science and is really entering uh, sort of pseudoscience mysticism type of thing, in my view.
0: But, and given that these definitions of uh, this innate sexed soul being either male or female uh, invariably draw us back to uh, quite conservative ideas of what it means to be male and female, they they tend to rely on sex stereotypes. If we're teaching children this, is that not quite a regressive step?
1: Yeah, I and mean, this is this is the angle I try to convince people of the harms of gender ideology. You know, we've, the feminist movement has in large part defined by this, uh, you know, trying to defy gender norms saying that just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I can't be masculine, I can't be an engineer or a scientist, I can't, you know, be risk-taking, I can't be aggressive, all these things um, that that they were trying to shake off. And what gender ideology has really done, it's sort of embraced those those ideas of what it means to be a man or a woman in a very essentialist uh sense and it asserts that you know if if you're behaving feminine then and and you're a boy then maybe you're actually a girl trapped in a boy's body um there was a really good summation of this it talked about um you know sort of feminism was that uh you know boys and girls men and women can both do the dishes and then it said equality was this idea that uh You know um that that both men and women you know or sorry it it started off saying sexism was that women should do the dishes and then it was equality both men and women should do the dishes and then gender ideology really says that whoever's doing the dishes is a woman like that's sort of how they're framing things now based on you know identifying with these roles so then that leads us into this realm of of non-binary
0: and i keep seeing this phrase online non-binary lives are valid but as far as I can see, someone who identifies as non-binary is just someone who doesn't see themselves as fitting into traditional roles of male or female. And therefore, by identifying as non-binary, they are, in a sense, reinforcing those roles.
1: Exactly. The, the non-binary phenomenon, I think, is really shows what's behind the mask of a lot of the gender ideology stuff, because they're not claiming that they're intersex. It's not like they're claiming to be somewhere in between male and female. Although Some will say use male and female as identities but what they're really saying is the the so-called gender binary that a non-binary person is is objecting to isn't the biological categories of male and female it's like the social roles and expectations that are associated with being male and female so you know these types of roles about masculinity and femininity and what what those roles mean for society so they're basically just saying that you know they don't agree they don't identify with these maximally masculine roles or these maximally feminine roles, you know they're somewhere in between, and that's we used but, to just call that gender been nonconformity. That for years, haven't they? Yeah, I attended a gender webinar recently that I sort of infiltrated, and under this they have this big umbrella that was like non-binary, and underneath it, and keep in mind, non-binary is, is considered a trans a subset of transgenderism, but under the non-binary umbrella was literally just gender nonconformity. So, um, gender nonconforming kids adults, they're now considered transgender according to this new ideology. But they're absolutely not. I mean, I was a gender nonconforming child. I didn't play
0: football. I didn't, uh, I, I preferred hanging out with girls and boys. It's uh, it's absolutely not the case that that makes you trans.
1: Yeah. I mean, this has been a really big definitional shift that, uh, I think a lot of people have not really caught up to. I mean, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm, I'm a, I'm a straight man, but I am certainly not, you know, like a Randy macho man, savage type of, you know, masculine character. Uh, I think a, a day spent bottle feeding kittens is, sounds like a nice, <laughs> a nice day for me. Uh, and so by their definitions, I would, be, I would be considered non-binary or gender fluid or something like that. Um, and this is something we need to really push back on. It's, it's one thing to just sort of reimagine uh, what it means to be trans in these cases. You know, what's the harm if kids just identify this way? Well, there is a whole like medical apparatus that is set up around people who are identifying as trans and what it means to be gender dysphoric. Um, and so, if we're letting gender nonconforming kids be trans, or if we're defining them as, as being trans literally, you know, this opens the door to a medicalization. It medicalizes gender nonconformity, and the medical institutions really need to catch up to this change in definition because it's, I believe, it's causing a lot of harm and it's contributing to this this insane. Uh, medical scandal that's going on right now
0: yeah i mean i have no objection to people if someone wants to identify as non-binary that's fine i mean that you know they can uh, people identify as punks or as goths or whatever you know these fashions come and go i don't have a problem with that at all um but the idea that 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 is often interpreted as being a repudiation of the biological reality of sexual dimorphism that to me is a problem then
1: yeah, they flip-flop based on, you know, whatever furthers their their ideology. So I've heard non-binary people say they just don't identify as male or female. Well, I, I don't know what it means to not identify as the sex that you objectively are. Um, and then they'll sometimes, you know, they object to this uh, binary of man and woman as these social roles and expectations. Um, it, it really makes no sense no matter which way you parse it. And it is really like the, the medicalization of, of gender non-conforming kids. So this is where
0: we get into dangerous territory, I think, because like I say, self-identification, people identifying, calling themselves what they want, dressing how they want, living how they want. I mean, I'm a liberal. I think anyone should be able to do that. I draw the line when people force others to use language that they don't want to do. In other words, people who would would like others to use pronouns based on self-identification rather than uh, observable biological reality. And that's that's an imposition too far, I would say. Um, But there's something going on here where... The the discourse has moved beyond uh, gender fluidity and self-identification and into the outright denial of biological fact.
1: Yeah, this is what got me out of the lab, I guess, and starting writing op-eds about this stuff. Um, Because, as I mentioned earlier, it was before we were all just asked to sort of have this compromise and use the words man and woman to refer to identity and, you know, male and female were kept to refer to these other things. Um, but, you know, there, were some, there was a, an article in Nature that I think was called Sex Redefined. Biologists now think sex is more, uh, you know, more of a spectrum than just male or female. And then we had Scientific American write an article about the sex spectrum, and they've written a lot more sense. Um, you know, this, this really just drove me nuts as a biologist um, to hear people say that sex is a spectrum, or even just a social construct, and that males and females are just these arbitrary categories. This is, it's, it's complete pseudoscience, any way you look at it. You know, I had, I used to be someone who wrote extensively about sort of the evolution versus creationism, intelligent design debate. And I was protected doing this because I was in the academy and all my colleagues were evolutionary biologists. Um, so they were fine with me debunking these ideas. But then all of a sudden, these crazy pseudosciences coming in from within the academy, I started speaking out against these things. And all of a sudden, I'm just this horrible human being. You know, despite the fact I'm just making biological arguments, uh, this was beyond the pale, and you know this was led to a, a large cancellation attempt. It's, it's bizarre. Can I ask you about that? So,
0: is it possible for uh, an evolutionary biologist who who is to be taken seriously to deny uh, or to claim that sex is a spectrum? Is that is that actually a thing? Because one of the reasons why this is a problem for so many people is they see uh, reputable medical journals denying. Science.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly wouldn't view any biologist, evolutionary or otherwise, who's making these arguments about the sex spectrum. I don't see how they can be taken seriously. And what angers me the most is the reputational damage and how it destroys the trust in science. You know, I wanted to be a science communicator. That's why I wanted to be a science, and I wanted to have students and and teach classes. Um, But this is sort of the low hanging fruit of what biologists should be able to state definitively. Uh, because there's a lot more complicated issues out there, like epidemiology. You know, we just went through a pandemic. There's climate change stuff, and these the models that you're using to to to, to model these types of behavior, and you know, of clouds and weather, uh, or the how a spreading infectious disease. These are so much more complex. And the same people who are telling us to trust the science on these issues, which you know, I, w- I would hope we can, are also the ones that are saying that male and female aren't even real, and you know, this is just a product of colonialism and um yeah so if if we can't get the fact that males and females are real holy crap how do we even get people to to go along with the much more uh complex claims that scientists are are you know previously trusted to, to do that we we entrust them to give us good information on it it's a travesty but how has that happened how can it be the case that the top
0: medical journals the top universities now have people who claim to be biologists who don't understand biology how has that happened
1: it's, it was sort of slow at first, and then a lot all at once. You know, I had a lot of colleagues who I spoke to who are fantastic biologists. And um, just as, you know, this whole acceptance and inclusion stuff came up, um, you know, they, they, they really just turned on a dime. You know, I had been joking with them about this stuff and people denying biology for a while. They were totally in agreement. Um, then a lot of them, they got jobs at universities, then they, uh, you know, pr- professor jobs. Then two weeks later, pronouns went up in their bios, and then you know maybe two more weeks later, they're they're texting me saying they have to denounce me because we co-authored papers together, uh, scientific papers, and they can no longer be associated with me because their scientific colleagues are are, are policing their their content. So a lot of it is just you know the social policing going on. But I mean, I think a lot of sort of become true believers uh, on this on this nonsense. It's just sort of this queer theory that's crept out of the humanities somehow into the sciences. Most of my advisors and mentors, the older scientists, they think it's all crazy. But then you have a lot of the younger postdocs and grad students uh, who have a lot of them, a lot of the older scientists, afraid to push back against this stuff because they're a well, afraid I a big social media campaign will come out. I think a lot of us are
0: surprised, though, that it has infected the the scientific branch of the academy because, you know, I come from an English literature background and uh, I, I knew full well, even when I was back in academia, that there were a lot of frauds there who were using a lot of jargon to disguise having very uh, sort of meager understandings of literature. And, 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 and bad ideas can easily seep into that kind of careerist, fraudulent um, uh, discipline. But I didn't think it could happen in science because the scientific method by its nature is continually testing itself, attempting to uh, prove itself wrong. And therefore, it is a, a, a sort of a means by which we edge nearer to what is true. And that's at the heart of it. So it didn't seem possible that this could infect it.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think it's a result of just the the ever um, you know the, the increased skew that we have in, in political ideologies in universities, I and mean, it's it's widely left skewed, um, which wouldn't you shouldn't matter in principle if we're all applying the scientific method as we should. But you know this this new focus on DEI diversity, equity, and inclusion makes it almost impossible for people to to just. Um, object to some of these ideas, especially if they're shrouded in sort of like a rainbow flag that's used as a like a Trojan horse to get these ideas in there. No one wants to be seen as like pushing back against these certain symbols that we've all associated with being on the right side of history, in a sense, Um, even when what they're saying is is pseudoscience and uh, extremely harmful. Is part of the problem that most people are just
0: basically decent people? And when we think of this debate, we think of those people with gender dysphoria who have struggled throughout their life to reconcile this sense of themselves that they have with their anatomy. And then for whatever reason, they feel they can only be happy if they have surgery or if they present as the opposite sex. And most of us feel a great sympathy for people of that kind. And we want those people to be happy and we want those people to have equal rights. Um, and that maybe is why so many people are falling in line with actually this very destructive uh, Version of that world when it's it, but it's, it's actually a separate thing altogether. Might might it be something to do with that?
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you that it, what's happening now is a separate thing altogether than what we used to. You know how we used to diagnose people with gender dysphoria and what we used to call transgender. Um, it's really expanded just to encompass gender nonconformity. Um, and you see these definitions being used in Planned Parenthood, even the CDC. If you just go on their website and look at what it means to be transgender, it's you know not behaving in a way that society expects you to act based on. Uh, based on your biological sex, it's, so it's just really just expanded to literally encompass gender nonconformity. Most people I talk to when they push back, you know, former colleagues, they'll just say something like, um, "You just need to accept people who they are," and it's you know, I'm perfectly willing to accept people for who they are. It's just that who they are isn't a medical condition if you're just gender nonconforming. Like they're they're just not following the full arguments that we're making about this stuff that it's just a very sort of sedated, you know, just broadly inclusive uh, idea. And they they just don't see the potential harms that can cause when we're medicalizing tomboys.
0: Do we think perhaps that uh, the attempt to medicalize gender non-conforming children, effectively to say that a tomboy must actually be an actual boy rather than a girl who just happens to like more traditionally boyish activities? And similarly, uh, this idea that uh, a young camp Gay effeminate gay boy is just uh, is 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 just a a, a, a woman, a, a, and might it be uh, this move into targeting children in this way that will event eventually peak everyone because that people don't want want their
1: children sort of medicalized for no reason. Yeah, I mean, I, I get messages from parents every day, multiple, and they're they're horrified about all of what's going on to their kids. They don't want gender ideology in their schools because their kids who had no history of even gender nonconformity or are realizing that they're just not, you know, the the perfect caricature of masculinity or femininity. And they're coming out as non-binary. And of course, you know, depending on their age, they want puberty blockers or they're, you know, interested in having a double mastectomy. This is, it's completely insane. I think parents are really going to be pushing back against this. They need to because it, it ruins families. It ruins children's lives, turns them into lifelong medical patients, um, yeah, this is, I've been peaked several times. So I was peaked as a biologist and then going into this more into the ideology that's sort of producing these, these bio, the biology denial. I mean, I get peaked every week on this stuff. So, um, the more we get it out there to the public, the more people that will be, uh, you know, shocked into an awareness of what's going on. That's, that's going to further, uh, pushing back against this stuff and, and making it end. But unfortunately people think a lot more harm is going to have to come before that and that gets there.
0: Well, I mean, I saw a parent talking the other day on a a TV clip about how they their their child came out as trans at the age of two. And you just have to think, that's not possible. You know? A child can have no concept of gender identity. And it's quite and and also, whenever you hear these clips, invariably it's because of the kind of toys they play with or the kind of clothes they prefer to wear. You know, this is just very reactionary, ultra-conservative views of what it means to be a boy and a girl.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you affirmed my identity when I was two, I would, I would be a Ninja Turtle, <laughs> pretty much. Uh, and, you know, so I'm in a lot of these Facebook groups, you know, sort of undercover, where a lot of these parents go when their kids will, uh, you know, express sort of any sort of gender nonconformity because they've been uh, hearing a lot about you know, gender ideology. And they go to these Facebook groups to get information of, you know, and support from other people about, about trans issues. And these groups really just indoctrinate parents. They try to just drive them to get more and more extreme uh, into this this gender insanity. And uh, you know, there's people going, saying, "Yeah, my two-year-old uh, girl is is likes the color blue." You know, my seven-year-old is gender nonconforming. conforming They like sports all of a sudden. So maybe they're, you know, I'm getting inklings that they might be a boy. Uh, it's it's happening everywhere. It's it's literally all over the place. There's been a further issue that some whistleblowers at at, at
0: pediatric gender clinics have said that um, a lot of a lot of the uh, transitions are being driven by homophobia, effectively amongst the parents, parents who would rather have uh, a heterosexual trans child uh, than a gay one. Is there any truth
1: to that? Uh, absolutely. So a big issue here. Um, is that if we're going to say that being transgender is, is expanded to encompass gender nonconformity? Well, there's huge bodies of research that show that being gender nonconforming is, is widely associated with. You know, not every single instance, but kids who are who will grow up to be gay or lesbian or bi or whatever, they, they tend to exhibit more gender nonconformity than kids who grow up to be to be straight. Um, and so, if this is true, then this gender ideology is going to affect more kids, boys and girls who are going to grow up to be gay, uh, then kids are going to grow up to be straight. So it really does. No, I do, I do view it as a new form of conversion therapy. Whereas previously, you know, we had tried to like make gay kids or kids who would turn to be gay. We wanted to change their minds to match their bodies. You know, your, your sexual attraction is not matching your body. You're You're a boy attracted to other boys. We need to change that. What the gender ideology does. It's just the opposite. It's just like, we need to, we can change your body now to match your mind. And then it's basically just transing the gay away uh, in a very literal sense. I like guess I'm not even, this is not even a stretch, I think, to, to make this comparison.
0: But you accept that there are genuinely gender dysphoric people who do need support and help in
1: society. Absolutely. You know, I'm good friends with a lot of them, Buck Angel and Blair White. You know, there's a reason that people their age aren't coming out and detransitioning in huge numbers anymore or, uh, at all. Um, it's because there was a lot of, you know, it's, you know, they would say gatekeeping, I would say safeguarding in place, um, where they actually had these, uh, these criteria for what, what is the kid who's more, most likely to maintain this severe type of gender dysphoria through into adulthood. And this was, you know, from a very young age being insistent, persistent, and consistent about, uh, you know, how uncomfortable you are with your sex. It's usually like a hatred for your own genitals. Now, I don't think they should be put on puberty blockers and things like that. I think we should wait till they're 18 to make any sort of body modifications. But I think people like that, they they would benefit from transitioning you know, uh, when they're adults. Um, I think transition can be the right thing for some people to do if it makes them feel better and uh, ameliorates their, their distress, for sure. Um, but a lot of kids who are just gender nonconforming, they experience maybe a form of dysphoria, but it's more of them just sort of realizing that they don't quite fit in with people of their sex, they have more in common with the opposite sex. And that can cause some sort of uh, anxiety, potentially for kids. But that's not the same thing as the gender dysphoria that kids who, you know, truly believe and have this deep inner feeling that they're in the wrong body, you know, this is, is very different than being trans. It's, it's, it's like dysphoria with a capital D versus just like everyday dysphoria based on noticing your gender nonconformity
0: can i ask you about you mentioned the uh addition of pronouns to an e- to emails and that kind of thing and i know you and i have both written about this and often uh the pushback i get is well you know it's just a way to be polite and in- inclusive um but there's more to it than that isn't there
1: there's a lot more to it than that yeah so because when people use pronouns it's well it's this disconnection they have that says that you're being a boy or a girl or a man or a woman is based on your identity and not on your sex, which boils down to stereotypes, as we, as we mentioned over. So when people go and they say, you know, my pronouns are he, him, what are yours? You know, they're not really asking what your sex is. You know, you might respond, like I, I might respond, you know, saying he, him, because I'm a, an adult human male. But when they hear this, because they're looking at, through it as a gender identity lens, what they hear is that this person says their pronouns are he, him, because they identify with the social roles and expectations that are associated with masculinity, you know, and but being a man. Uh, but that's not what I think at all. So I wrote a piece in, the, in uh, the, the Wall Street Journal that was saying that, you know, this is kind of a Trojan horse for gender ideology. They want to normalize everyone using these pronouns and doing participating in these rituals um, to sort of normalize this idea of pronouns are referring, you know, whether you're a he or a she. Refers to your identifying with certain stereotypes. I say to reject this idea because that's that's not an ideology that I want to participate in. It would be like saying, um, you know, beginning a conversation saying, Hi, I'm, I'm Colin, I'm a Virgo, what's your star sign? Uh, you know, you might say, Well, I'm a, you know, whatever yours is based on the month that you're born in. But if you're like actually participating in this type of thing, you are really operating within this larger ideology of astrology that is completely pseudoscientific. And we would see like, you know, I don't want to participate in, you know, all these star sign rituals because I reject this whole framework altogether. That's really what I argue to do is you need to reject this whole pronoun ritual thing because the framework is operating and the ideology is really bogus and and denies reality.
0: And we're getting uh, into the realms of compelled speech. I mean, most companies that uh, at, at present are suggesting that you write your uh, pronouns in your email or you open a meeting by announcing your pronouns. But even within that, there is a kind of coercive element. You know, you don't want to be the person in the meeting who says, oh, no, I don't do that. You don't want to be the one who initiates an uncomfortable, awkward debate when you just want to be getting on with your life. And and, and I'm sure the time is coming when people will be mandating this. And at that point, it is compelled speech. And that is a threat to liberty.
1: Yeah, it starts out as a way to. Maybe signal to your other colleagues that you know you you're inclusive and you you know you're a safe space or something like that. But the more that people put these pronouns in their in their bios, it's not really signaling that you're you're part of this group or that you're inclusive. But it's it can then be used to sort of uh, smoke out those who who aren't doing it because once it's so prevalent, nobody can just claim ignorance of you know not putting their pronouns in their bios because they didn't realize pronouns were a thing. And so not having pronouns becomes, uh, you know, an, they can they can reasonably assume that you reject their framing and this whole things or, you know, to them, they would say it's basically announcing that you're transphobic and uh, you're unsafe for students and things like that. So that's that's what we're moving towards right now. Um, and I know a lot of universities and conferences, they don't outright say that you must put pronouns, but they highly encourage it. And people will say like, oh, what are your pronouns? I'll even hand out on your name tags. It has a little. Thing that says your pronouns are, and you you can mark it in, so you can't claim to not not have noticed that that was a a field to enter. So, what would you advise to
0: people in that position? Uh, they've been told to announce their pronouns at work, um, but they don't want to, and they feel uncomfortable with it, and they don't want to signal some kind of fealty to this ideological movement that they have no truck with. What would your advice be?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say for people to you know, you can have them call you by your name. Uh, you can just. Say I'm not comfortable revealing my pronouns. Um, you know, whatever it, it's going to change by situation, and you know, some people might not feel that they can actually stand up to the the ideology at the moment, given how precarious they might be in their uh, their career at this at that time or their job. Um, yeah, I would I would usually say something like, you know, I don't agree with with the ideology that's producing that question. Um, you can call me Colin. Uh, I don't feel comfortable giving my pronouns um, something like that I mean I, I think everyone needs to really think about for them what would they be most comfortable saying uh, well, it's I did though isn't
0: it because people are quite intimidated they're quite frightened you yeah, know, I, uh, yeah, yeah I'm not the only one to have noticed that the most vicious bullying you see online comes from people with pronouns in their bio generally speaking that's yeah. just a, a common correlation that lots of people notice. And that that does make people nervous about uh, you know no one wants to upset the bully.
1: Yeah, and it's it's wildly it would be wildly awkward if you're the only one out of a group of new hires at a company to just be the one, you know, being the stickler about pronouns, but that's that's sort of what they're they're using that social pressure in order to get people to normalize this gender ideology which I think is is creating so many harms in society. So, uh, if you're aware that that's what it is that it's gender ideology, I mean like you need to kind of take a stand, I think. For for reality and and you need to be bold. I mean, it's it's there's no way to do it that's not going to be free of some awkwardness um, and people sort of raising their eyebrows at you, unfortunately.
0: But let's talk about some of those consequences because I mean, I noticed from your Twitter feed that you recently have experienced uh, some forms of what we would call cancellation, I suppose. Um, uh, what, what has happened there to your Patreon and the like? Yeah,
1: so it, it wasn't Patreon. So I had. Um, so mainly i'm on substack and that's unaffected i make money through there um, for for subscriptions to articles that i write and things like that Uh, but as sort of an additional boost for income since i'm just sort of independent journalism uh, i had both uh paypal set up where people could just write in how much they wanted to donate to me every month or they could do a single single donation um and then i had a store on etsy where i just sold some merchandise that had the logo for my uh, my Substack on it, for instance. So I got a message from Etsy saying that you know, without any warning, my account has no no strikes on it whatsoever. Uh, Etsy just out of the blue emailed me saying that um, after this comprehensive review with great consideration, uh, they have opted to cancel my store to to permanently ban my store uh, for violating their rules against. I think it was glorifying and promoting violence and hatred against. Um, against protected groups. I'm assuming and you don't you're... do that, Colin, right? You don't do that. Do <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I posted all the graphics that I have on my, my merchandise. There's literally only four things. There's one thing that just says the text reality's last stand. That's the name of my of my sub stack, and it has a male and female symbol. There's another one that's a shield logo that has the same thing. Reality's last Stand," male and female symbol. There's a, another shield logo that says defender of reality with a male and female symbol. And then there's a a political cartoon that I drew uh, that kind of went famous because Elon Musk retweeted it. Um, And it's just like showing the the political spectrum and how it shifted beneath my feet. And there's nothing offensive on that. It's just a a political cartoon. Um, That's it. Only those four things. So I tried to appeal. They came back and said that, uh, you know, that's we're rejecting your appeal. And they reiterated that it's glorifying and promoting uh, violence and hate. Um, you know, that's an annoying thing to have to change stores, but I can just take my products with me and elsewhere. It's not like a huge loss. Then PayPal uh, sent me a message saying that I can no longer do business with PayPal forever. After some sort of review, they decided that my, my account was too risky or something. I have no ability to appeal. When I tried to, I got a message back from PayPal saying that if I wanted any information on any user, which includes me. Uh, that I would need to have a lawyer submit a legal subpoena to find out what's up, um, and you know this is much more like there's a world of difference between canceling someone's store and canceling someone's relationship with their donors that you sort of build up and accumulate over time. You know, I'm sure some of them will donate elsewhere, but there's going to be a major drop off because you know every time you have people put in their information somewhere else, you know not everyone's going to do it. I'm, and I'm fortunate it's happened now before it was. You know, such a sum that I come to rely on. Um, but it's really spooked me because I'm an independent journalist. This is what I do. It's there's no telling that Substack or Stripe or something isn't gonna boot me off. You know, they're very pro free speech now, but who knows how how their management might change in the next five or ten years. So yeah, it's a it's a pretty scary place to be in um, when payment processors are the ones that are canceling uh, business with you.
0: And you know, it's quite. I mean. it's it's outrageous. Um, You know, they're accusing you effectively of hateful behavior. They're accusing you of being a transphobe. And, you know, a lot of people I know are accused of this on a routine basis. But and I'm not saying transphobia doesn't exist. I know there are people out there who will feel a sense of hate or grievance towards people with gender dysphoria. I don't know anyone and I've never met anyone who falls into that category. And yet most of the people I know appear to be accused of of this on on a daily basis. So what on earth is going on here?
1: Yeah, I'm. I've I've bent over backwards to not be any sort of provocateur or even be perceived as one. You know, I'm just the guy telling people that sex is real and that it matters in certain contexts because we're sexually dimorphic. Uh, it really doesn't go much more beyond that. You know, I, I'll criticize the gender ideology and point out flaws in it. But I've always been the person that attacks ideas and never people or groups. And you know, I don't want to use the I have trans friends, argument, but I do, and they're. <laughs> they're, they're some of my closest friends that I, that I currently have, and I'm happy to use their preferred pronouns in certain, you know, as a, as a social, um, you know, politeness for them. And, and it's not even hard to do. So for me to be flagged as, you know, this beyond the pale person, when I'm just making scientific arguments about what sex is and why I think gender ideology is harmful, that's if if I'm beyond the pale, then holy crap, there's so many, you know, that's that's pretty extreme, you know.
0: Some of the most gentle, kind-hearted people I know are being branded as fascists, you know, and yeah. it, it is it is utterly insane. And, and, and it does come back to what you're doing with your substat, with Reality's Last Stand, is that, you know, these people are detached from reality. If they think that these liberal people who, who want everyone to be able to live their own life and, and live in happiness, if they think those people are fascists, then we're lost, aren't we?
1: Yeah, we're, we're totally lost. Um, yeah. So, what do I mean, we do to bring
0: people back into, into the real world? What do we do about that?
1: I mean, I think we're, we're doing that currently. Uh, I, I started writing about this stuff in 2018. And, you know, I look at some of the comments on Twitter to those articles, and no one got it. You know, everyone's like, oh, this biologist, he doesn't understand the difference between sex and gender. It's like, no, I do. They're blurring those lines. Um, but now when I write an article and put it out, people get it. Everyone gets it, at least, you know, a lot more people than before. Um, we're seeing the New York Times now sort of starting publish articles that are critical of, of you know, the gender medicine for kids and things like that. This would have been unthinkable just a couple of years ago. Uh, so it's it's happening. It's It's slow, but it's snowballing. And I think it just needs to reach a point where more people feel comfortable to speak up against it. And the more people who are speaking up, you know, you can't cancel everyone. Uh, and we're reaching that point, I think. I'm, I'm not going to predict when that inflection point will take place, but it's, you know, I think it's in the next couple of years.
0: Well, I you hope know. you're right about that. But one thing that I don't think is getting any better is the uh, political tribalism and the determination of activists online to mischaracterize really decent people as essentially evil. That seems to me to be escalating. And is it, might it be that it's escalating because the argu- their arguments aren't being won? Because they sense that people are waking up to the problems. M- might it be a,
1: a, um, a, s- a signifier of, of desperation? I think the desperation thing is really accurate. I think, you know, like getting an a- animal cornered, you know, to they're going to, they're lashing out in an extreme way because uh, their, their ideas of the way that they can just, you know, call someone a transphobe and make them disappear. That's not working as much as it used to. And so they need to turn up the heat and just call everyone everything they can even more frequently so i think that's what we're seeing. i think it'll get more and more extreme up into the point where uh you know they actually start losing power relative to the people that are speaking up against this stuff um yeah i think so it's going to get crazier before it gets better well yeah the craziness I, I, isn't I, necessarily a sign that it's it's not going to get better exactly i mean i've noticed
0: uh, um just from my own experience more and more people referring to me as far right and things on twitter these are oh yeah People on Twitter who know nothing about me. But the ones who actually take the time to look into what I stand for, they realise that's the opposite of what I stand for. And, and it, quick, it very quickly falls apart, anyone who sort of has any acquaintance with me whatsoever. But that doesn't stop the sheer... Um, I, I have to say it's hysteria uh, from what I've seen on, on, on Twitter, which is why I now no longer even attempt to engage... I don't think you can engage with, with hysterical people. Maybe it's about choosing our battles and you know, addressing people who are still capable of
1: rational discourse. I agree with that completely. I don't use Twitter to, to argue with people to, to, to think that I'm going to convince them that they're wrong. But whenever you look at a tweet, you see you know how many impressions that it made. Maybe it only has like 100 likes, but there's sometimes thousands of impressions. So people are seeing these things and are not necessarily commenting. And I think if you're just putting your rational approach uh, based in scientific fact alongside the, the sort of gender ideologue, hate-filled you know, screeching that they tend to do, the people who are in the sidelines of watching these conversations, they can tell the difference between, you know, which one is, seems to be having a reasonable conversation and who's open to, to arguments and which side isn't. So I think t- talking to the, those fence sitters or the people who are at least somewhat new to this is that's my target audience. I don't think for a second, I'm gonna convince anyone I'm directly engaging with that they're wrong or that they're gonna admit it publicly uh, on a public platform. But there's a lot of people who are paying attention to these arguments. And I think those are the ones that we need to sort of focus on on changing their mind.
0: I mean, I suppose it relates to the cartoon that Elon Musk retweeted, your, your cartoon about the way in which you, you considered yourself on the left, the ground shifted and you ended up being perceived as being on the right. I mean, that's pretty much the essence of what the cartoon was saying, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And it's, it's really only on a, a set of core values, too. Like, I'm sure you could make that cartoon. If you would draw it for certain individual political questions, it could look very different. But it's really, I mean, when I drew it in my mind, it's on just the the core values that I had that made me consider myself on the left, which was just like, you know, standing up for free speech, which has been previously conceived as the way for, you know, oppressed groups to speak truth to power. This is like a sacrosanct belief on the left, Uh, you know, racial issues um, that, you know, I've always been of the sort of Martin Luther King judge people by the content of their character instead of the color of their skin and now we see this identity politics that is more interested in group interests than individual rights and then on women's rights you know this is something that i've always been for uh and now we have this gender ideology that has made impossible to even know what a woman is and now men can be women this is um it's completely insane so it's not that yeah it's not that my position has changed on the spectrum but i've if i stand back and i look at where my my values are best reflected now. It does tend to be on on people who I would consider center right than center left now. But well, this this isn't because I've changed, as my cartoon shows. It's because the left has like drawn out so far the left that the the center has sort of passed me by, and this is now where I'm perceived uh, to be now.
0: Because I've been told that uh, being in favor of free speech uh, makes you right wing, and it, it, that it's a far right talking point or a right wing dog whistle. These kind of things. I mean what what's going on there
1: yeah there's been a dramatic change in the narrative of people using free speech and scare quotes and so-called free speech um you know this might just be a cyclical thing where the whoever has most the power has incentives to squash the speech of others because you know they they're hoarding all the power you can only lose it more if others are allowed to speak so, I mean, I'm, this would, would probably is, will change hands uh, as powers change in the future. But, um, you know, as an individual, I'm going to just be for free speech, no matter what side. I mean, I never considered myself having a side in this whole thing. You know, I don't I don't believe in the political tribalism. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really unfortunate that this is something that has been completely abandoned on the left. Um, but there are people who do embrace it.
0: I've noticed a lot of people going after Elon Musk as well and characterizing him as far right because of his uh, ostensible support for free speech and you know you having been retweeted by him and having your cartoon uh, put out there I suppose you must have had some kind of uh, flack from that
1: Yeah I mean there were a lot of articles of people trying to debunk my cartoon with you know high powered analyses and things like that um you know it's again there's it's a it's a political cartoon it's not a dissertation on anything it's got a two-dimensional political axis and there's probably tons of issues where the cartoon would look dramatically different um but it spoke to a lot of people i mean i think it's got over or at least close to three hundred thousand retweets right now and almost if not more than two million likes so it struck a nerve it's, it resonates with people and i think rather than people trying to debunk the cartoon they should ask themselves why does this resonate with people so much? <laughs> what is the why do so many people in the comments say this describes my experience exactly? It's, it's best to reflect on that rather than dismiss it because that reflection will, I, I guess, help them better understand what they've potentially done wrong and how we can decrease this polarization. Um, yeah, that's I, I'm actually quite happy the conversations that that cartoon started. If I never thought it would be. Uh, you know, the most talked about thing for like a day and a half, but I'm, I'm glad no, it was. I mean,
0: it's important because, you know, how else do people explain Bernie Sanders supporters who ended up voting for Donald Trump? You know, I mean, th- this this sort of thing yeah. actually, it actually does matter that if you think of politics in this uh, now outdated, I think, right-left binary, you're missing uh, a lot and, and particularly you're missing the incredible impact of the culture war on politics and on elections. It wins and loses elections. You know, this is something that people they'd rather just pretend that the culture war isn't a thing that it's concocted uh a confection of the right or and they but and yet again and again we see its impact playing out when election time comes around
1: yeah there's a really big problem in our in the u.s especially because we have the you know the whole duopoly going with the political parties there's just only two main ones and so no matter how nuanced your view is when it comes to election day um you largely just have to sort of take in all things considered and, and make a binary choice with your vote. So, with me having been considered center-left, you're like I could just change my views very slightly, but that could change my binary choice on what side I vote for. Whereas someone who was, you know, center-left before who went, you know, maybe their ideological shift was huge and they went so much further to the left, you know, their vote stays the same. But since I changed my vote, I'm considered like the radical who's abandoned. Uh, my values on one side, even though like ideologically, my, my shift um, was incremental compared to theirs. Uh, and, this, and this is used as just a way to hammer people over the head for the culture war and say that, you know, oh, you've, you've gotten so extreme, Colin, because now you're voting for Republicans. Uh, yeah. It's, it's that, fodder for the culture war. I mean, that's an odd thing as well, isn't it? It, 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 it
0: feels like uh, an act of projection, that kind of accusation. You know, I mean, I often hear people say, Uh, things like J.K. Rowling was radicalized online. Uh, But apparently to be radicalized online is to endorse a view that 99% of people hold and have always held. Um, And surely it would be the the 1% who are now claiming there's no such thing as men and women and only doing so over the past five years. To me, that would probably be, I don't think anyone here has been radicalized online, but that would be the more likely, wouldn't it?
1: Exactly. And the only way they can say that people like J.K. Rowling have been radicalized is because they've created this like culture of fear of anyone who talks about this. So they they look around, you know, in your academic department, you know, raise your hand if you don't think sex is a spectrum. Oh, no one's raising their hand. Okay. It seems to we seem to have a scientific consensus though that sex is a spectrum. Even but you know, they've people in that crowd, they might have seen someone like me say sex is a spectrum and just get hammered and people going after me to, you know, to get me either fired or to ruin my reputation so I can't get hired anywhere else, people notice that. So you have this chilling effect. So you create this false scientific consensus on these issues because you scare people who would disagree with you. Um, That's happening not just on the sex and gender debate, but I I see it across tons of other uh, topics too. It's it's really quite insane.
0: I mean, you Sam, when we were talking earlier about this issue, it sounded like you were quite optimistic that eventually this will win out over the next couple of years. Uh, but will it win out in academia? Because from what you're describing, if you're seen as the marginal one, and yet you're just presenting scientific fact, if that's a marginal thing within the scientific community,
1: isn't it going to take a lot longer to rectify that problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the universities. You know, there's there's several ways that they could go. Um, I'm I'm not very optimistic about the universities. You know, some people say they need to be reformed from within. I'm not so sure that there's the mechanisms for reform from within. Some people think they need to just crumble to the ground and then. A new or better university can rise from the ashes like a phoenix. And then the one I'm more interested in, surprise, I'm an evolutionary biologist, is sort of the Darwinian approach where you have other universities like the University of Austin, for instance. Um, If they're wildly successful with their new model that's sort of like an anti-woke type thing, uh, that'll send a message. And that could maybe even contribute to an internal shift if if you know, if it's just we need to compete with these new universities that are doing so well uh, based on these 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 different sets of values, um, I, I think probably that's the way to go. Is the the parallel or at least the the competitive environment? The only main issue is you get a lot of these um, you know uh, accrediting institutions who are putting in these DEI things in there uh, in order to give to. to um, for a school to get accreditation, they need to have, you know, sort of tilt, tip their hat to these woke ide- uh, ideas. So that could be a problem. So maybe we need alternative uh, accrediting systems as well. It's 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 a complete mess. But I think I think the competitive environment is probably the way to go on
0: well, these. That that's the problem, isn't it? Because in the short term, at least, say you are a young person and you you decide to go to one of these new Uh, universities that take this anti-woke stance that are interested in the pursuit of truth and 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 core traditional educational values it's perfectly possible for people to render such degrees useless uh by by stigmatizing yeah
1: exactly if they'll see oh university of austin you know they'll they'll do to them what a lot of people do to the university of phoenix now it's in academia i've been in those rooms where people are looking at applications and for people who don't know the university of phoenix is a Sort of this online for-profit university that, um, you know, I'm sure they have some good classes, but they're seen by a lot of people as exploitative. Uh, And I've I've been in 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 groups before where they're going through applications, and it's just like University of Phoenix, and it's just in the in the trash basically. That'll happen, I'm sure, to people who go to the University of Austin. Um, But at some point, you know, if they're producing a lot of good good scholars who businesses can trust that are actually competent rather than just you know being pushed along through their programs. Um, you know, but eventually that, that signal is going to be worth something. If, if it's an honest signal, it'll catch on, but it might not be immediate. So, well, yeah. I mean, that's
0: it. They, they will be producing higher caliber minds. I mean, that's going to be the bottom line. Um, but also, I, I imagine it's, it's quite attractive for a, a genuinely intellectually curious young person to go to a university that will stretch them and challenge them and not one that will simply demand
1: conformity. Oh, I agree. That, that's... That's how I feel when I went to university. I mean, I graduated in 2012 from UC Davis and it was an amazing environment. It wasn't soon after though, that it's, well, a lot of universities had a major sea change and, and it shifted. But um, if we could just go back to what universities were 10 years ago, that would be, that'd be a, a big improvement. Um, but I think we can do even better than that because a lot of these you know, departments of humanities based on you know, queer theory, critical theory, all this stuff, they have no place in the university. These are ideological, you know, activist mills. They, they just, they're not scholarly in any real sense. Um, and I don't, they should be, they should be funded, honestly.
0: Just before we finish, I want to ask you a bit about the political climate uh, in America. Do you, do you think that Joe Biden's administration has made uh, all of these issues a lot harder, uh, uh, has actually
1: raised the temperature of the culture war? I don't know if it's raised. I would say that someone like Trump raises the temperature more, um, but then people like Biden, you know, they're they're not an an obstruction to any of sort of the woke, critical theory, queer theory ideologies. I don't think Biden is particularly woke himself, but he's certainly not going to be standing in the way for any of these ideologies to come through. You know, I think there's he's expected to try to push through the the Equality Act, which uh, you know includes. Gender identity along sex is a protected category, and so uh, basically, this would mean that in federally funded institutions, you can't discriminate on the basis of uh, of gender identity. So, you know, say by the women's sports in any any college that's receiving federal funding. Um, there's also maybe some changes that are going to be happening to Title IX. Again, right now the wording is talking about biological sex, but of course, gender identity is always what's coming up uh, to be injected into those into those laws that would. Dramatically reinterpret uh, top down how these things are uh, enforced in society. Um, no, I don't think he's particularly turning up the heat, but he's definitely uh, making the problem worse uh, for for woke ideology. I suppose. I mean, from our perspective, from a British perspective, we
0: we we looked on at the uh, American election and we thought that Biden was the non woke candidate amongst the Democrats, and that's that's one of the reasons why he was why he was successful in securing the nomination. And and yet one of the first things he did when he's in office is to is to sign. a, 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 a it, it was relating to women's sports, wasn't it? He was talking about uh, inclusion, trans inclusion in women's sports. And that happened a couple of weeks after he was elected. So if, if we do get this situation where it's signed into law, that gender identity has to be observed, even when it comes to sports categories. I mean, that's that's going to be very difficult to unravel, isn't
1: it? Yeah, it's going to be really, really difficult. I mean, they're already succeeding largely just by redefining words. So if you have women's sports, you know, they've redefined a woman as anyone who identifies as one rather than what the whole point for segregating sports in the first place is due to biological sex. And everyone knows that. Um, But if you can just change the definition or just apply it differently, then you can have, uh, you know, reinforce these laws in any ways that you that you like. Um, but it is a much more big a bigger problem if you're actually changing the text and putting gender identity right in there uh, as protected as just as much as sex is. You know, I don't know why a subjective brain state like that needs to be uh, a protected category, especially one that can be fluid and change moment to moment uh, over time or can encompass multiple identities at the same time. It's Again, it's just a pseudoscientific ideology. Surely it can only work if you accept the
0: premise that gender self-ID can never be uh, fraudulent. In other words, anyone who says there's something must be treated as something. But of course, there are all sorts of ways in which that could
1: be exploited, right? Oh, I mean, of course, people are going to exploit it. There's already been examples of people exploiting the ideology. It's a, it's like a sociopath's playground. Who anyone who wants to manipulate people, they can, they can just enter themselves into any any environment they want to, um, at the expense of you know women, largely since they have more to, to fear from people self-ID'ing as women than, than men have to fear from you know, women self-ID'ing as men. Do you think, though, that the Leah Thomas case it, it, it
0: has... I mean, I think it's had a massive effect because I think just that visual image of Leah Thomas standing on the podium being obviously male, towering over the other competitors. I mean, that... I think that's woken an awful lot of people up. And sometimes it's those kind of those moments uh, that when it, it's no longer an abstract idea It's something very very material and very obviously so do you think that's right
1: absolutely i think i'm I'm kind of leaning more and more towards this like let's just get as crazy as we can as fast as possible to get it over with and i think that people like leah thomas um you know in one race i think she beat the next second place swimmer by something like 37 seconds which is just you know you can just i'd count it out here but it'd be a lot of dead air time if we did that Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's truly shocking. It's like this perfect example of like, if, if your ideology is so detached from reality, well, that has a consequence. You're going to see these consequences pop up. Um, these absurdities pop up, you know, it's just like, if, if you're building bridges, if you're an engineer and you're, you're, you don't know anything about engineering, like you're going to see your bridges collapsing the moment a truck tries to drive over it. Um, unfortunately like ideologies, they're not as, You know, you don't get as much immediate feedback from the environment when you're when you're detached from reality. Um, But you still will get these. You know, the the biological equivalent of a collapsing bridge. I think is like Leah Thomas competing against in in women's sports and winning by thirty seven seconds and winning the NCAA Division One Women's Championship recently in Atlanta. So um, yeah, it's it's it peaks a lot of people. I think it ultimately helps us, even though um, you know it's unfortunate for the athletes who are placing second or third or you know.
0: One of the um, one of the great things about the way that you write, as well, is that you do write in a, an accessible way. Most people have haven't got a clue about evolutionary biology or even biology, you know. But, but people do find this very very confusing. But you do lay the points out in a very accessible, very clear way, and it feels very and it's very and it's irrefutable because you're dealing in, in scientific fact. And now you've you sort of started the Substack. Do you want to tell us about? what you're doing with the substack?
1: Yeah, so I have a substack. It's called Reality's Last Stand. Uh, And it's broadly associated with, um, you know, providing good, accurate information, articles, newsletters, reading lists about uh, sex differences, the biology of sex, criticizing gender ideology, why it conflicts with biology, why it's pseudoscience, sort of arming people with the the proper arguments they need to push back against a lot of the, the gender ideology that's happening in society. It's, I want it to be just sort of this main platform where it's not even just me, but other authors that are contribute sort of like a online magazine publication on this stuff. Um, it's, it's my newest endeavor. You know, I started about two years ago, but I've recently um, left my, my day job to do this full time. And it's, it's been exhilarating to, to do and I'm, I'm enjoying every second of it uh that's also why the whole paypal fiasco is a little scarier because you know substack is powered by stripe which is this other payment service and you know they've been upholding free speech uh so far but you know it's it's still a click away from some angry intern just shutting everything off but uh it's i I don't i don't have to worry about that for a while but it's a it's a great platform no i
0: don't think i mean substack does appear to have a a a very strong commitment to free speech and you know long may that continue well uh Colin, thanks so much for talking to me today and a really good luck with your Substack and everything else that you're doing. Thanks so much.
1: I appreciate what you're doing as well. It's fantastic. Thanks very
0: much. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Colin Wright. You can follow Colin on Twitter at SwipeWrite and you can check out his Substack, Reality's Last Stand as well. And if you enjoyed the podcast, make sure that you like and subscribe, tell your friends about it and come and join me next week where we'll have another fabulous guest. See you then.